Welcome to Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World, a production of the Vandenberg Coalition, where we shift the focus beyond the Indo-Pacific and into various regions around the world where the CCP continues to threaten the interests of the United States. The Vandenberg Coalition is a nonpartisan network dedicated to protecting American security, prosperity, and freedom through robust analysis of pressing national security threats and the promotion of a strong and proud American foreign policy. My name is Carrie Filippetti, and alongside leading experts, we are reshaping the conversation around the China challenge. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Ryan Berg, Director of the Americas Program and Head of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Dr. Evan Ellis, author of China Engages Latin America, Distorting Development and Democracy, on It Takes Two to Tango, China and Latin America's Growing Partnership. We hope you enjoy. So thank you both for being here today. Thank you. I want to start with the level set, which is essentially, what is the current relationship between Latin America and the Caribbean and the United States? So before we get into China, what are we doing effectively in the region? We'll start maybe with, with uh, Ryan. Well, thanks to the Vandenberg Coalition. Thanks, Carrie, for, for having Evan and I on this, this event. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk about China and the region. I think one of the things that we do very, very well is our security and defense cooperation. That's the first thing that, that comes to mind, uh, because oftentimes what happens is if a significant humanitarian disaster happens, there's a security need in the region. Southcom is the first call for many of our partners and allies in the region. So it's something that I would highlight we still do quite well. I think uh, countries in the region also expect a significant amount of foreign direct investment from us as well. Um, where we're not doing so well is in some of these big, flashy infrastructure projects, as well as being more strategic about where we put some of our money with the help of state institutions to try to lubricate movement of uh, supply chains, but also movement of capital into certain industries. We do that less well than, than China does. And, uh, and it's become apparent. But two areas where I would highlight are the FDI area and the security and defense cooperation, something that our partners and my travels throughout the region highlight again and again as our strong suit. Great. And, and Evan, you've been studying China's rise in the region for quite some time. So talk a little bit about the trends that we're seeing with China. You know, how, how have they started to exert their influence and how is it different today than, say, 20 years ago? Absolutely. Great question, Terry. And also, uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on this uh, for, to the, the Vandenberg Coalition. Uh, and I also would just echo one of the things that uh, Ryan said, um, and uh, that is the strength of the U.S. private sector contributions in our engagement in Latin America. Although uh, we, in the perceptions of Latin Americans, uh, have oftentimes a fraught history, uh, it's also worth uh, emphasizing that the amount of, of total uh, U.S. trade is, is well over a trillion dollars. I think it's $1.15 trillion, according to the IMF. Um, which is actually greater, especially when you look at Mexico and Central America, than what uh, China is doing right now. In addition, um, it's not only that the U.S. Uh, tends to bring a more value added in the nature of its uh, integration of Latin America into supply chains, um, but it tends in its investment to be a better corporate steward in terms of corporate social responsibility and in terms of uh, treatment and in terms of opportunities for Latin Americans to, to rise up within that. Uh, China oftentimes runs its business primarily for, for its own interest. Um, but with respect to the second uh, question, Question, what that we've seen in, in Latin America, and I followed this for about 21 years now, is first a transition uh, when China was admitted into the World Trade Organization in 2001 from a primarily trade-based relationship in, in which uh, Latin Americans would uh, you know, buy uh, Chinese goods and, and would export to, to China its commodities uh, through existing exchanges. Um, starting after the world economic crisis of 2008, you began to see um, Chinese presence on the ground in, in sectors from uh, metals and in mining to other sectors uh, from the automotive sector to telecommunications. But particularly in the past several years, um, that economic engagement has metamorphosized uh, to the point where there's much more emphasis now on green energy technologies, uh, electricity uh, generation, transmission, distribution, um, certainly telecommunications and other digital sectors, not only Huawei, which has been you know, 20 years in the region uh, in um, in telecommunications, but, but also in things like, like e-commerce in terms like uh, surveillance systems in terms of, of port scanners, in terms even uh, of uh, taxis and, and ride-sharing companies. Um, but the other dimension that you see, um, in addition to the security component, which has in many ways always been a, a piece of, of the puzzle, although uh, a supporting one, um, is that you increasingly see a increasingly assertive China in one that is oriented uh, in a, a political um, and uh, more ideological domain. You see this through kind of the four legs, not only uh, China's uh, 
global um, Belt and Road Initiative, but also the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, which uh, explicitly incorporates uh, Latin America through uh, interest in engaging with SELAC and in the BRICS in ways that very um, blatantly exclude participation in the established uh, inter-American system in which the U.S. has a role at the table. Um, and uh, perhaps even more troubling, uh, this idea of, of the Global Civilization Initiative, in which uh, China pushes back on the ideas uh, of, a, of a U.S.-Western concept of human rights and democracy and tries to frame it in terms of a relatively unenforceable, well, role for democracy, but we really don't know what that is, and so whatever you do, go, which uh, implicitly disarms the attempt to impose a rule of law, which is undermined, which has really been the foundation of, of our prosperity in the hemisphere for, for really um, almost a century now, and um, it replaces it with uh, one in which uh, the state that is most able to coordinate its efforts with the private sector and is most predatory, aka China, is able to make uh, relatively untoward advances. Um, I want to dive into each of these sort of specific areas that you mentioned. Both of you sort of alluded to critical minerals, the economy, security cooperation. Um, I'm also very interested in how um, you know China's uh, influence in sort of like the local politics of the region plays, because I know that's significant as well. Um, I want to start maybe with critical minerals, because this is something that always comes up in a conversation about about China, um, and so. We know that China currently controls something like 80% of the critical minerals um, access. Um, and these are these are natural minerals that we all know are, are required for our national security. Um, the lithium triad, which encompasses Argentina, Bolivia, and, and Chile, um, is one example where China is investing very, very heavily in, in access. So what is the risk that China's control over these critical minerals poses to the United States? Well, there's certainly multiple risks. Um, and it's a uh... Interesting to note that uh, China has already, in multiple times in the past, used critical minerals as, as a weapon. It used it uh, in Japan's industrial supply chain in automotive and other sectors about a decade ago. Uh, and most recently, actually, although uh, we talk about this less than lithium, um, it has actually uh, indicated it would cut off the, the U.S. from its, its gallium supplies, for, for example. Um, but over the long term, it's in part about the defense sector, which relies on these. But it's also part about U.S. Uh, leadership in green energy uh, as we move towards uh, addressing uh, climate-related issues. Um, and it's not just about access to things like lithium in, in the ground. And certainly China is uh, on the ground everywhere that you find uh, lithium and other critical minerals. Uh, it is, uh, you know, for example, not only in, in Bolivia, in the north of Chile and, and Argentina, but also in Mexico with the lithium deposits in Bacanora. Um, but beyond that, it's also uh, increasingly involved in all parts of the extractive chain. And so what you find is that uh, even where it's possible to get access to the lithium itself, the question of, of who controls the, the processing, creating a critical bottleneck. Um, and even when you look at leadership of, of key technology sectors, we think of, for example, Tesla, when you think of electric vehicles, although uh, Chinese companies like, like BYD are increasingly taking advantage and expanding in places like Latin America. Um, but even a company like Tesla, for example, depends fundamentally on Chinese-supplied uh, lithium-ion batteries and, and Chinese components in their electric vehicle supply chain. And so at the end of the day, as China tries to wrestle value added in these critical sectors away from Western companies for, for itself, um, even uh, what we consider national champions of our own find themselves at risk from the Chinese strategic foothold in supply chain in places like Latin America. Ryan, anything to add? Well, I, I agree with Evan. I think that the control, it's very uh, important that we emphasize that the control that the Chinese exercise over critical minerals is through their control of the supply chain. So the Chinese, about 10 or 15 years ago, were very, very smart, definitely looked at this and took losses for many years to try to consolidate control within certain elements of the mining sector. So you have the financial aspect of it, you have the actual extraction aspect of it, you have the refining aspect of it, and then you have the export to the to the value-added components of what those minerals will be used for. Uh, and China has consolidated a position in all of those areas. Um, but they don't actually own, in many cases, they don't actually own the minerals in the ground. These are Latin American companies and countries that have decided to partner with Chinese state-owned enterprises. And part of that conversation for us is finding ways to open up avenues for U.S. and European companies and I would add Taiwanese companies, South Korean companies, Japanese companies who have the type of environmental standards, labor rights standards, and other things to compete, mm -hmm. to, to open those spaces for them to actually get uh, a, a fair shot at getting some of the, the extractive concessions that Latin American countries are thinking about. Um, and that involves elevating the standards, having a new conversation about what it means to actually have the social license to mine, 
um, and doing things in a way that is in contradistinction in many ways to what the Chinese do in the extractive industries in many parts of Latin America. I think it could earn us a lot of kudos. So are we seeing, I mean, in, in Africa, for example, and we'll get to this in our um, in our Africa episode, but a lot of the mining that's being done there that's supported by the Chinese is actually involving um, essentially slave labor. Are we seeing any of that in the Latin America region or do the Latin Americans have enough control over their mining sector right now that they're not sort of falling into that trap yet? Inchic blood varies. Um, so specific to lithium, what you find is that's being negotiated right now. And so you have some relatively strongly institutionalized uh, countries su such as Chile, which uh, you know have exerted controls uh, and uh, you have expressed an limited production through concerns over the impact on on the water table and things like that. Um, you have other places, uh, you know, such as uh, you know, for example Argentina, where the uh, regulation is done at the provincial level, which is much more permissive, and so that the Chinese have really preferred to operate in that that, that space. You have uh, other cases. Uh, where, for example, in, in Bolivia, where uh, Chinese companies uh, such as TBEA and, and, and Citic Guafang have uh, moved uh, directly in at the, at the national level, taking advantage of the ability to do kind of state to state uh, to essentially uh, do, what they, do what they want. Um, but it's also indicative of a broader problem. This is you indicate that um, the uh, ability to get local benefits um, and the ability to protect local labor is only as strong as is local government conditions and, and transparency. Um, there's an expression in China that um, the emperor is far away in the mountains are high. So it's not that China does not have corporate uh, social uh, um, regulations on the books, but often what happens is that companies push as far as they can get in, in the local market trying to cut corners and, and abuse those regulations, labor environment and, and other affairs. Um, and the Chinese states, uh, although they reluctantly impose standards when it begin, begins to become a foreign policy problem, a reputational problem for them, um, at the end of the day, um, Generally, if the local uh, governments uh, do not uh, enforce those standards, um, really the it's uh, the local companies and, and it's the, the, the local workers that are getting the, the raw end of the deal. We're at the point in time where I think, to Evan's point, it, countries in the region are going through a reexamination of their mining policies, their regulatory architecture, sometimes not for the better. Uh, but sometimes potentially for the better. And part of that conversation is looking at new environmental practices and regulations, new labor standards, which I would argue offers a, an opportunity for the United States to open some doors for the U.S. and other Western companies to have a better chance at getting some of the concessions. One of the other pillars um, that that you raised, Evan, is um, the economic pillar. And, you know, I mentioned in the opening that now China is the number one trading partner for most countries south of, of Costa Rica. Uh, traditionally, I think the United States has occupied um, that position. Um, there were statistics um, that um, that came from a, a paper that Forum for American Leadership put together that said uh, 2000, in 2000, the Chinese market accounted for less than 2% of Latin America's exports. Um, it's grown at an average about 31% over the next eight years um, and is expected to reach, I think the latest I saw was about $700 billion, um, in the next 10 or, or 12 years. Why? I mean, what is what is China's purpose in sort of advancing this? And um, how concerned should the United States be about the burgeoning trade between Latin America and China? Well, essentially, as China's moved into the region, um, it, it's had the advantage of having coordination between the government and um, its, its state and enterprises, particularly as well as other companies, um, especially in, in sectors which are strategically prioritized. Uh, China was also sitting on on a mound of, of cash and had a relatively generous banking partners for those SOEs uh, so, who were able to help China buy in. Initially, after uh, 2008, in, in sectors like, like mining, uh, other sectors, uh, for example, such as telecommunications, the Chinese built a presence from the ground up. In some cases, for example, in the automotive sector, the, the Chinese were able to take advantage of relatively uh, creative financing at, at home and and uh, you know strong backing, and, and oftentimes robbed technology in, in sectors as such as such as wind and, and solar with photovoltaic display to to basically come in at a very low cost point um, and, and beat out others and, and implement on scale. Um, at the same time, what you've seen is that. Um, the Chinese were buying many of those uh, interests from Western companies, oftentimes uh, Australians, Canadians, U Europeans, who uh, were pulling out of the sector for, for other reasons, um, and that helped China's advance. Uh, in other cases, uh, you had uh, U.S. or other companies who were worried about getting involved in Latin America because of concern over uh, you know, political and juridical uh, stability as well as uh, concerns over uh, some of the uh, corruption uh, given their vulnerability under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, something that really is not as much of a factor for, for, for China. So there are a variety of, of different reasons. It's often said, well, 
U.S. has uh, not taken good care of, of the region, but in many ways, ironically, as we and European companies have concentrated on uh, Asian markets, uh, we have gone, allowed our private sector companies to, to follow market signals, which have honestly not led them to uh, invest heavily in Latin America at a time when, when the Chinese were, were pushing to come in. Um, and also worth pointing out that there's also been an accelerated process of learning. And so companies uh, from State Grid who bought in big way in, in Brazil, now almost $36 billion of, of investment in the electricity sector, also now operating in places like, like Chile and, and Peru, um, uh, have learned on the ground how to be effective local operators, how to integrate their technicians. They made a lot of mistakes at first, a lot of problems with, with local communities. Um, but little by little, uh, that presence on the ground has allowed them to be more effective players, which in combination with the role of the, the Chinese state has, has led them to make some pretty uh, pretty effective advances. Although it's fair to say that um, you, it has not been effective advances everywhere. You've had uh, a lot of problems uh, in Colombia, for example, uh, you know, some of the same difficulties which have impacted Western companies. Uh, I've also impacted at Chinese companies. Uh, Zihin, for example, which has the Pratika gold mine, uh, had to shut down operations because of problems with organized violence. Uh, also in Colombia, for example, Emerald, en Emerald Energy uh, has also had some problems with, with uh, organized crime that, that forced them to shut down some of the petroleum operations. So the Chinese also have had some problems, but little by little, they are learning, they're adapting, they have resources, they, they have support. And so um, the longer term trend is they've been making those economic advances, which has brought with it um, certain other advantages in terms of, of influence and the ability to help each other advance in other areas. Do you do you buy into this argument that you hear often in, in Washington, D.C., this idea of debt diplomacy? I mean, do you think that is China's aim here? Yes and no. Um, there is a certain factor where Chinese policy banks, at least initially, had provided loans. But in general, the Chinese like to set up their um, their uh, arrangements in what they call a win-win fashion. And so, um, you know, they... They win twice is the way that I've heard it. It described. <laughs> and most of it, yeah, the, you know, it, the Chinese corporate partner, wins and the local elite who gets a special side deal for, for his family, et cetera, wins. And oftentimes it's the, the company and the, it's the country who gets a, a deal that economically doesn't make sense and it is poorly executed by the, the Chinese company. It ends up losing. But um, we saw a lot of this in, in Hanban, Tolta, in, in the port in Sri Lanka. It was interesting to me that illustrated more broadly than the, just the debt involved, um, the, the nature of the Chinese challenge. Because the way that the Chinese uh, arranged the deal is it had certain political benefits for the party in charge. The Chinese really didn't care whether the deal paid off or, or not in terms of, of economic viability, um, but had a plan in terms of, of the contracting that once it didn't pay off, that gave them the secondary option that they got control of the port, which is a strategic uh, benefit. Um, but what you see again and again um, is this uh, China is very aggressive through uh, what we'd really call lawfare. Um, they, they set up aggressive contracts uh, in which, for example, in the case of Venezuela and Ecuador, they securitized payment with parallel contracts in which, on the one hand, they were delivering, um, they basically pumping out oil to uh, to basically pay off their own line of credit. They're using that, that line of credit then without money ever actually leaving China to actually do work earmarked for their companies in places like Venezuela, which, uh, and again, it didn't ma matter whether the project was successful, but the fact that, uh, you know, they, uh, as long as they were doing the work that they wanted to do, they ended up get, getting paid. Um, but again and again, we find that the Chinese are very adept at making sure that they get paid even if the projects themselves don't provide value add. And at the end of the day, they gain experience, they gain influence, um, and their workers and companies uh, get the technology that they need. Uh, you, know, For example, in, in Brazil, it's access to deep water technology. Um, it's, it's access in some cases to um, to, to experience with uh, telecommunications technologies. It's access in some cases to, to mining technologies. And so the Chinese are very good in doing things that get them what they need, making sure contractually that, that they get paid. Um, and at the end of the day, debt is a part of it, but it's only one of the pieces. Ryan, how would you sort of describe the China's involvement, both you know economically via trade or investment? Yeah, I, I think to complement what uh, Evan said, I think we have to look at it in three distinct phases. The first phase I would describe in the early 2000s when China's economy is really growing in, in double digits, the numbers aren't cooked as they are now about economic growth. And there's a real need there to be able to feed a growing population, uh, a very large population of 1.5 billion people, but also to get some of the minerals that they need to fuel their economy. Uh, and so there's a certain complementarity in this period of time between what some of the countries in South America, especially Peru, Chile, Brazil, Argentina, have on offer compared to what China needs. 
And there's this haphazard engagement, which has profound domestic political consequences that we can get into later, namely a, a pink tide, a leftist swing in, in the region. But there's a complementarity there uh, between what China needed and what Latin American countries at that period of time were offering. The U.S. wasn't in the same market for Brazil's soy. We weren't in the same market for Argentine wheat. Uh, China was, on the other hand. So this first period of engagement I would characterize by uh, engagement, but a, in a haphazard way. Around the time that she becomes president, I think China starts to, to think a little bit more strategically about their engagement with Latin America and the Caribbean. We get the, one of the first papers out of the Chinese foreign ministry about where China, Latin America fits into China's overall global strategy. We have some more strategic thinking. We see the Chinese start to use the initial economic foray into the region to actually extract real strategic concessions from the region. And then we have the third phase of, of that engagement, which I would characterize as the most recent phase of engagement, which starts in about 2017, 2018, with the first countries in the region acceding to BRI. And you have that next step of, of engagement. Panama went first. 22 countries now are, are, have acceded to the, to the BRI. Let's assume that uh, the US and Canada aren't going to accede to the BRI anytime soon. That means there are only 33 countries in the region that could potentially accede. Seven of those recognize Taiwan. So let's subtract from, from there. Okay, you get about 26 countries. Well, 22 of 26 have already acceded to the BRI. You've got some of the big countries yet that haven't done so, uh, but they very well might uh, in, in the future. So I would, I would add that and the three phases as an important part of, of our understanding. Um, frankly, the Chinese were willing to take more political risk in some of these areas. To go back to what Evan was talking about uh, very comprehensively, mining. Um, Latin America has more mining conflicts than any other region in the world. When you look at that from a political risk perspective, from a U.S. private sector lens, you want to stay away from, from Latin America and the Caribbean from a mining perspective. And China was willing to take that risk, uh, mostly because their state-owned enterprises were closely collaborating with the CCP. On the last point about the debt trap diplomacy, uh, I don't think that that phrase in particular has found fertile soil in Latin America and the Caribbean yet. And the reason, as Evan alluded, is that we haven't seen a Sri Lanka type situation yet. Um, we very well might, but the way that I would characterize it now and the best way to describe it is lost opportunities. Yeah. Evan brought up Ecuador, which is a great example. Uh, we're two presidents now past Rafael Correa in Ecuador, and about to be three is when we have the, the, the final round of the presidential election in October. And yet the country is still working on paying off the debt that the country took out under the Correa government in the 20, uh, 2007 to 2017 window. So if that's not lost opportunity or opportunity cost, I don't know what is, but it's because, as Evan said, they tied the repayment to the national oil company such that the country can't move forward past being a resource extraction-based economy because it has to get itself out from this massive debt burden. And a recent report in the Ecuadorian Congress estimated that the country has suffered from about $5 billion of opportunity costs that could otherwise have been gained had it not been for their national oil company's production tied up in this prearranged set of agreements where there's a set price for the, for the barrel um, that could be much higher if it were sold on the spot market. So rather than debt trap diplomacy, I would argue that opportunity cost is the best way we should talk about it in Latin America, at least as it currently describes various scenarios. One of the other ways that um, that China has been involved in the region is, is in defense. Um, so I'm curious how you assess um, the growing national security risk to the United States from China's increased cooperation with Latin America, everything from um, providing weapons to um, surveillance programs in some of these countries um, to more specifically um, the recent news about uh, a joint military training facility um, uh, sponsored by China uh, based in, in Cuba. I mentioned the, uh, the satellite in Argentina. What is the sort of tangible risk, if any, to the United States um, by China's uh, involvement in, in these countries' defense sectors? Great question, Kerry. There's certainly always been a defense company. Uh, indeed, if you go back to uh, China's uh, 2015 defense strategy white paper and the update in 2019, um, you find that it's openly talked about as well as uh, in uh, China's uh, 2008 uh, 
white paper uh, towards Latin America. Um, but the issue has is, is been, and, and really, um, you, you've had a series of different things. You've had uh, gifting to uh, militaries and police forces, including allies like like Colombia, uh, although it's uh, traditionally been uh, some of the more populist leftist states that have bought more serious military goods, uh, Venezuela buying the first decade fighters, um, Ecuador buying the first a lot of uh, large military trucks, um, uh, Bol uh, Bolivia buying, buying the first uh, Chinese military helicopters, uh, Argentina now positioned um, possibly to, to buy the Chinese uh, FC-1 if they don't go with the, the U.S. Uh, F-16. Um, and of course, uh, you've had uh, training relationships, uh, PME relationships, which have allowed uh, the Chinese to basically get to know some of the, the future generation of, of Latin American armed force leaders and uh, their doctrine and, and, and tactics and procedures, including those things that we in the United States uh, train and, and work with. Uh, the, the same on. Um, and there's been a limited number of, of engagements in, in the region itself. Uh, their hostile ship Peace Arc has come to the region uh, three times in 2011, 2015, and 2018, 2019. They uh, had a, a small contingent in the Minnesota Peacekeeping Force in Haiti for, for eight years. Um, they, they do a lot of, of uh, institutional visits to the region and, and uh, sometimes send their uh, you know, missile frigates and, and other uh, ships to the region. Um, so that has been going on for, for a while. Um, but uh, as you pointed out, uh, one of the things that recently came out is uh, this the the fact that at least since 2019 and probably uh, far before, uh, the Chinese have actually had uh, access to the electronic intelligence and gathering facility in, in Lourdes and maybe negotiating a, a training relationship. Um, and what's happening now is, is we move toward the prospect of a you know unlikely but still possible war with the PRC over Taiwan. Um, we have to look at what China is doing commercially as well as militarily through a wartime lens as well as a peacetime lens. Um, and in the wartime context, the concern is not only um, the use of, of those training relationships in, in that presence uh, against uh, the United States, of course, we have some very sensitive facilities doing some very delicate uh, um, you know, electronic emissions uh, across the, the U.S. East Coast that we would use in time of deployment and sustainment flows uh, in, in a war in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but it's also commercial facilities because if you look at all the things that uh, China would try to do in this hemisphere and not just wait for the U.S. to, to come to the Indo-Pacific, um, there are countless opportunities in terms of, of staging special forces and teams and MSS and other intelligence collectors, uh, whether it's out of uh, China's uh, commercial uh, port facilities, of which it has you know, seven in Mexico, it has Freeport, the Bahamas, is just a little bit more than 50 miles from, from U.S. shores, etc. Um, the prospect of, of putting uh, U.S. Um, allies at, at risk if, if they don't go along with Chinese pressure to, for example, uh, you know, not cooperate in intelligence, not uh, cooperate with, with the U.S. In, in terms of use of our airspace. Um, Chinese familiarity creates opportunities for doing certain things to cut military logistics, um, you know, to me, the operations that they have, for example, on both sides of the Panama Canal um, is not as important um, as the fact that just their overall operations in Panama let them relatively easily shut down in deniable ways the Panama Canal. And, and of course, uh, the secondary route is, is to go around Argentina, the Straits of, of Magellan, Drake Passage, um, and the fact that they're now putting together a, um, a private uh, regional um, port facility, which would allow them to have a presence to, to potentially interrupt that, that secondary passage, creates other strategic uh, questions. Um, the Chinese have long been working uh, commercially in s space with the region, uh, having launched satellites for Venezuela, um, for Bolivia, for Brazil, now working on uh, number seven, uh, as well as uh, various other space cooperation agreements with countries like like um, like um, like, uh, like Peru, and of course you mentioned the space collection uh, facility in Bahadriagu and in Laikan, and the one that oftentimes people don't talk about, the uh, radar observation telescope in, in the San Juan uh, Observatory. Um, all of these things that basically give Chinese access to Western Hemisphere space, um, and that access you could use uh, both in terms of of capturing information about uh, you know overflying satellites, possibly gather signals, possibly exploit it for your own telemetry. So, for example, uh, the Chinese just a couple months ago launched a basically an orbital uh, attack system called a hyperglide vehicle, which could be used to essentially come over the South Pole uh, to launch an attack under southern U.S. defenses um, against the United States. Um, if you did that, uh, you know, once you come over the South Pole, you, you need a place to get telemetry on that thing that you're sending over as it moves toward the United States. And so, uh, you know, nice to have some uh, radar facilities in Argentina that you have access to. And so, again, without saying that uh, you, we all have to prepare for a war with the China tomorrow, um, it's important for Southcom and, and Northcom charged with uh, hemispheric defenses and, and others to think about what those commercial facilities could be leveraged to do if we ever have to fight that undesirable fight with China over Taiwan or something else. Right, so, you. you know, Evan mentioned equipment. Evan mentioned uh, education. We all love to talk about IMET. 
um, and education, I think it's one of the things we do well, but it's also one of the things where China has copied us and they've, they've done it fairly well. Um, and I think a perfect example is to point out a country like Guyana, which doesn't have a very large armed forces, but has had a significant number of their top brass educated uh, in the PRC, even though they only take about 12 to 15 guys every year. It's easy to educate most of the upper crust of, of the Guyanese defense forces, even though you're only going to take you know, between a dozen and, and a little more than a dozen every year. Uh, so I would emphasize IMET as one of those areas where uh, you know we really should lean into it because it's something we do well. Uh, armed forces in the region, when I travel it, are thankful for the opportunities to come to the United States and study and to do rotations, and we should we should lean into that. Evan mentioned that the possibility of a hypersonic glide vehicle. It's also my understanding that we lack coverage uh, in the, in the in the very far south, um, and that that Neokin uh, space station could in fact provide some kind of telemetry support for uh, for a hypersonic glide vehicle if it decided to come up over over the South Pole. So what does this all mean? I think um, one of the biggest risks I would highlight is interoperability, and it's not. I want to emphasize that interoperability is not in the same way that we would understand it. Interoperability between the United States and, say, a NATO country. That's not how the PRC looks at it, and Evan has been really good at defining this in a couple articles that he's published. Interoperability from the PRC's perspective is reliability. If I need to use that commercial port to resupply and get a logistics uh, docking for my PLA Navy ship, I need that reliable access to that port and that's interoperability. For I can rely on it in my time of need. So when we say interoperability, at least in the Latin American context, I'm not fretting about all of a sudden, you know, the Colombian army joining the the PRC and fighting against the United States. That's not what I'm what I'm talking about in terms of interoperability. But Evan has done a really good job in a couple pieces defining what that might mean and what it might look like in practice. And it really looks a lot like reliability of the use of some of the critical infrastructure and dual use infrastructure that the PRC maintains in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. The last thing I would say, Kerry, that we didn't talk about in terms of the security cooperation, safe cities. Um, safe cities technology, when you start to dig into it and you understand what it's, what it's really about, is a nightmare. Um, it is the CCP exporting a lot of its digital authoritarianism to countries in the hemisphere uh, where there's an appetite for it because there's a mistaken understanding in the hemisphere that China has very good domestic security. There are low levels of crime in China and that crimes generally go solved and low levels of impunity. It's not actually the case. Uh, but nevertheless, there persists a, an idea that, that China is very good at uh, deterring crime and also solving crimes and lowering levels of impunity. And I would argue that as long as the region represents only about 8% of the world's population, but about a third of the global homicides every year, there's going to be fertile soil for China's safe cities technology when governments are grappling with how to deal with their security challenges. Well, and this is another way that we've seen uh, China influencing the region. You know, Evan, you, you've sort of described China's role in places like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua um, as, as an incubator of populism. Um, and so I wonder when we're looking at the domestic politics of many of these countries, what types of information or disinformation is China spreading? And how does that um, contradict U.S. interests in, in the region? It's a great point, Karita. Um, for me, it's, it's important to understand that uh, China, by contrast to the Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, is not uh, generally overtly seeking to uh, overthrow governments and, and impose its own, uh, you know, governing complex on those countries, um, but rather in the process of pursuing it, its own interests uh, to, to its own economic and, and other benefit um, is having an indirect but really catastrophic effect on democracy in the region, human rights in the region, and the willingness of, of the region to cooperate with us in, in security, whether it's drugs or migration or other things that are fundamentally important to, to U.S. security. Um, and so what you find uh, on the one hand with what we consider maybe the, the hardcore authoritarian populist states, um, as those states turn towards authoritarianism. Um, China was there to say, okay, um, as long as you treat Chinese companies well, um, you can do with your people, your constitution, uh, what, what you want. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it wasn't that the Chinese gave them so much money that it, it enabled them to, to prosper, um, but there was enough money that it helped stabilize the regime, $64 billion to, to Hugo Chavez and later Nicolas Maduro, um, about $18 billion to Rafael Correa. 
Correa's regime when he was charged in Ecuador um, about uh, six billion to um, to to Evo Morales when when he was in power in, in Bolivia, um, and the list goes on and on. Um, but what it did um, is not only was it uh, enough resources, loans, buying of commodities, some some investments um, to keep them financially solvent so that they could continue consolidating power and, and not having to worry about how much they they, they scared away the, the private sector or, or or annoy the West. Um, but it also um, the deals were untransparent enough and structured in such a way that there was money to basically spread around to give the stakes of, of the people, the business in other sectors, the military sectors who were supporting those elites. And so on the one hand, um, you have basically China pursuing its own interest in ways that essentially facilitated a populist transition. Um, and there, in countries that weren't explicitly authoritarian populist, um, oftentimes the Chinese money made those countries less willing to feel that they had to um, essentially obey um, or, or heed as much uh, U.S. and Western institutions. Uh, you know, case in point is Naib Bukele in, in El Salvador, who basically has felt, well, you know, I've got a majority in the Congress, I've got China as a funding source, and so um, U.S., say what you want, talk to the hand. Um, the um, But as you point out, it, it goes beyond even essentially a region which is already in crisis because of COVID-19, or already in crisis because the inflationary effects of, of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, um, is you have a fundamentally statist governments that moving towards some, some very bad decisions. Um, it pushes those governments in a direction in, in which uh, China is there as kind of the, the payday lender of, of last resort. Um, but in addition to that, also as you talk about, um, there is some implicit discourses. Um, one that Ryan alluded to before um, was uh, Chinese information architectures, which essentially run Russia deep privilege uh, the protection of individual rights and privacy in the interests of the state. Um, and to the extent to which those architectures are adopted, they not only help the countries adopting them, I mean, like Rafael Correa with Equi 911, to stay in power, um, but they also fundamentally undermine privacy rights and democracy in those countries themselves. Um, there's also a, a messaging effect um, in which uh, people in Latin America look at China and saying, again, as Ryan alluded to, well, you've done all right, um, China's done all right, bringing 800 million people out, out of poverty and these technology solutions seem to have brought security and seem to have brought order. Um, so maybe what the West says about, you know, having to you know build in privacy protections, maybe that's not so important. Let's, let's go with the Chinese architecture. Um, and so there's a, a, an enormous number of different um, subtle and indirect ways in which China in pursuing its own interest is, is fundamentally um, undermining the willingness of the region and the democratic roots in the region in ways that, that fundamentally challenge U.S. interests and security. So I want to, uh, Ryan, ask you the same question, but I have two clarifying questions for you first. So when it comes to China's role in um, the dictatorships, let's say in Latin America, your argument is it's less that they are explicitly sort of trying to seed anti-democratic movements, but when those arise, China sort of capitalizes off of them. Absolutely. China works with both democratic regimes. I mean, it works with the Chileans, it, it works with the Colombians, but, but it also works with the dictatorships on, on different terms, always in pursuit of its own interests according to its different style. Um, China typically also plays a balancing act um, because it, it does, frankly, strategically benefit from regimes which are anti-U.S. Um, I, I remember when I was on the policy planning staff of Secretary Pompeo, um, the Chinese uh, tried to avoid explicitly aligning themselves with Maduro, um, but, um, you know, but at the same time, they were not in any hurry to help us. To, to have a democratic transition. Um, it's the same thing we saw in North Korea with Kim Jong-un. It's the same thing we see in Russia now with the uh, kind of you know, deniable neutrality on you know, Vladimir Putin, even while they profit hand over fist or, or with Iran or, or elsewhere. Um, the Chinese recognize that those types of regimes strategically distract the United States. They, they, they undercut our ability to, to build a consensus rules-based order. Um, and at the same time, the Chinese profit hand to the leak from them. So they try to do that insofar as they don't get tainted by the ill-advised or malevolent actions of those regimes. And so they're always trying to be you know, benefiting, but not entirely appearing to be in bed with those ill-advised. And then the second question is, um, you mentioned this sort of, um, this message that you know, maybe maybe the American system isn't the ideal system. And you sort of alluded this to Ryan, this idea of, you know, maybe they would benefit from the types of system that China has, which is making sure that there's less crime and so on. I've noticed that um, some of the Republican presidential candidates have spoken about one of the advantages that the United States has over China is countries, quote, want to partner with us, not with China. Are you starting to see that shift a little bit or do you still think that that is broadly speaking true in the region? 
Well, sometimes it's a matter of, of how we see ourselves and needing to evaluate how Latin Americans uh, see things. Um, in my judgment, the Latin Americans understand that there is a um, the Chinese system is fundamentally predatory. They understand that there, there's risks. Um, but most uh, Latin American business and, and political uh, counterparts uh, basically hope to benefit from doing business with China, either personally or, or, or in terms of their country or, or nation, while believing that they can control those risks. Sometimes they bet wrong, sometimes they they, they, they bet right. Um, but it's not because they embrace the authoritarian nature of the Chinese system. Um, at the same time, oftentimes that they, they use rhetoric like um, you not wanting to get involved in a the competition between great powers, which is essentially a, a way of, of freeing themselves to, to take the Chinese money. Um, the, the, the fundamental problem is that those expectations of benefit and sometimes the, the webs of, of influence of the Chinese through people-to-people diplomacy and other things, they suppress a discourse of, of dangers um, and they, they prevent a discussion in Latin America from what fundamentally is being given up from, from those values. Um, the risk is that sometimes we also um, you tend to, we pat ourselves on the back saying, okay, um, well, our, our partners tell us how much they love us and they love democracy and they love doing military engagement with us because our schools are better. Um, but we blind ourselves in the process of, of seeing how, despite how they the region feels affinity with our, our values, um, fundamentally still goes down the path with China in ways that selectively change their political systems or take away our liberty. And, and by the time we, we recognize the threat and our partners recognize the threat, it's oftentimes really, really too late. Um, Ryan, you have done a ton of work um, on sort of looking at the dictatorships in the region. How do you see China's role in the democratic backsliding there? Well, the first thing I would say is I absolutely agree with Evan that there's a role for China, uh, and China has played a role in Latin America's democratic backsliding. To give context to how important that development has been over the last 20 years, uh, you can basically look at any index of democracy, be it the EIUs, uh, Freedom House, Transparency, uh, the VDEM project, any of the various indices that exist. Latin America is the country that has experienced, Latin America is the region rather, that has, has experienced the most amount of democratic backsliding in the last 20 years. And yet one of the biggest changes overall in Latin America's geopolitics and economic orientation is away from the United States and, and towards China. So our original uh, thought at CSIS is there's got to be a nexus there. And so we started digging uh, a little bit more, partly with Evan's help, and we, we've uncovered, I think, a couple of mechanisms by which we can confidently say that China's having an impact on democratic backsliding. And it's as Evan said, it's not China pushing a regime type. China's regime agnostic. Uh, the, the word that China uses most often other than the win-win cooperation phrase uh, is cooperation. So basically the only thing the Chinese know how to do is cooperate. Um, everything for the benefit of, of, of both countries. And yet um, what we've uncovered is a, is a very... Uh, profound nexus between what happens in the exogenous and what happens in the endogenous. So Chinese offers state-owned enterprises and their engagement in the region with connection with domestic political sphere, uh, helping build up certain parties, being an authoritarian patron to uh, someone that's working on consolidating their regime, um, building up uh, certain industries such that those industry lobby groups then lock up politics in a way that make it very difficult to move away from China, as has happened in Brazil, as you've written about, with the three or four different large Brazilian agricultural groups that, that push for the agricultural lobby. Um, all of these involve a very complicated mix or nexus between what happens outside and what, what happens inside. So it's far more complicated than just China pushes for a regime type. But it's certainly safe to say that China feels more comfortable with its authoritarian kin. It understands its authoritarian kin uh, better, and it feels like it's uh, in a better strategic environment if there are more authoritarian populist regimes because it understands them, I think, much better than it understands uh, democratic uh, regimes. The uh, point that Evan made about collectivism is a very, very important one. Uh, because the Chinese refer in documents to a, quote, collective right to development. So de-emphasizing the individual in, in the role of economic growth, de-emphasizing the importance of, of the private sector uh, as we would define it, and, and uh, the state protecting property rights, and emphasizing the state's role in bringing the entire nation up as a collective in this development effort. 
you can see very clearly how this cuts against the promotion of democratic values and a focus on the individual uh, and, and so on. So part of that narrative battle dovetails, I think, with, with China's uh, role in, in democratic backsliding. And this all complicates uh, the U.S. posture in the Asia-Pacific. I think we should be very clear about the fact that there's a nexus. Um, Latin America and the Caribbean often don't get their due in U.S. foreign policy. We often overlook the region. We often fail to understand that a tidy neighborhood at home, a region that's largely economically integrated, prosperous, democratic, is the source of our power projection capabilities further afield. And the more China can make our neighborhood complicated, messy, less tidy, the better it feels like it can mitigate some of that power projection capability in the Asia Pacific. It'd be the exact reverse of what we've happened to do over the last 50 years with China. They've got two US treaty allies on their doorstep. They've got a very complicated uh, uh, sphere uh, that they're trying to influence with a lot of countries aligning with the United States more openly because they're afraid of China's rise. If China can do the same thing in Latin America and the Caribbean that we've done to it in the Asia Pacific, I think it would have profound consequences. And so we need to start realizing again the nexus between Western Hemisphere and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, another major nexus, and I would be remiss to not mention this as we're talking about uh, national security implications of, of China's influence in the Western Hemisphere, um, obviously has to do with the border and specifically with fentanyl. And so um, as, as you both know and have, have written about, um, after Trump's uh, ban on Chinese fentanyl sales, China rerouted its precursor chemicals, um, which are essentially necessary to produce fentanyl through Mexico, um, which has continued to traffic at, at increasing rates. Um, highest number of deaths um, this this past year, I think, uh, in 2023, we're um, looking to actually even increase that number. Um, it's, it's affecting almost everybody in the United States at this stage, um, with teenagers being the population with the largest growth. Um, I guess my question here is, um, do you, do you consider this sort of, uh, commercial only from the perspective of China? I mean, do you think they're doing this because it's just a way of making money? Or do you think that this is essentially almost like a form of asymmetric warfare? Like, how do you view the fact that they have been um, so obviously negligent in um, in not banning those precursors from coming to the United States? Maybe we'll start with Ryan. I think at this point, it's fair to say that it's that it's geopolitical, that it's uh, it's gone beyond uh, just negligence or state incapacity and is now uh, openly a, a strategy uh, in China. I think it's a completely fair thing to say that China subordinates its counter-narcotics cooperation to geopolitical concerns. And I think that there are historical analogies that we could draw to the weakness that China feels its society suffered during the so-called opium wars um, and became a fractured society, became open to, to conquest and, and defeat. Um, and you can draw those historical parallels to today where we are also uh, at loggerheads in, in many aspects. We are suffering from this uh, to the tune of 100,000 plus deaths uh, per year. And to the extent that China can weaken the United States domestically, I think that it must be thinking that that's for the better uh, in terms of its geopolitical competition with the United States. So I personally, I would say it goes well beyond negligence or, or state incapacity at this point in time. They do know what they're doing. They know who the, who the producers of these precursors are. And generally speaking, they know the direction in which the precursors flow, uh, and they've refused to to lend a hand to to cooperation. I think the perfect example is uh, cutting off that cooperation in the wake of Nancy Pelosi's visit to uh, to Taiwan. I think it very clearly shows that counter narcotics in Beijing is subordinated to geopolitical concerns. Anyways, as Ryan also alludes to, um, controlling the thousands of companies, uh, petrochemical. Uh, chemical companies that are involved in fentanyl um, is obviously a very difficult uh, task. And yet at the same time, if you look at China's ability uh, through the great firewall and internet supervision to basically control the, the discourse of you know, more than 1.4 you know, billion you know, Chinese, um, you know, it's uh, you know, if Chinese can't control a couple thousand companies, I think there's something going on. Um, to me, it goes back to essentially China's uh, selective omission and enforcement uh, what you know, that you find with Chinese companies who are doing uh, violations of labor rights or, or other things, or for example, what you China's uh, lack of of uh, um, of, of uh, 
of, of pressure to help us uh, to uh, you know work for a democratic transition in, in Venezuela. Um, it's not necessarily that China actively is looking to uh, subvert, although certainly that that's possible. Um, I tend to see it in terms of, of China not being in a hurry to help us out with something that is fundamentally weakening us at China's gain. And so um, you know, China. You know, I, I remember you know again when I was at international narcotics and, and law enforcement. Um, when when I was on the policy planning staff, um, you know, INL actually did got some pretty good progress when we put enough pressure on getting the Chinese to bring um, some of, of their direct fentanyl shipments to the United States under control. Um, and of course, as you pointed out, you know, that moved it to Mexico, where now you have these elaborate kill presses and, and operations in um, in places like Sinaloa with uh, Sinaloa cartel and Jalisco Nueva Generacion. Um, what's happened, though, with, at this point is that um, you know, China recognizes there's a, there's a big mess. They want to appear to be doing something. Um, and yet they drag their feet because, as Ryan points out, it's fundamentally weakening us. It's fundamentally causing problems with with the Mexicans, um, and it's creating, um, and frankly, as happened with, with North Korea with nuclear weapons, um, once China solves a problem, it loses its leverage. And so while it's always there to be asked to help solve this problem, the question is, okay, well, what will you give us if we help you solve this problem? And I think that's kind of the space that, that China is navigating in right now with fentanyl. If I, if I could yeah, just add please. one thing, it's just... Uh, yeah, we ho- and I'm, I promise I'm not going to do self promotion here. We 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 hosted uh, Dr. Rahul Gupta, the the Biden administration's uh, drugs are um, about two three months ago at CSIS Americas, and it was a very fascinating conversation. But one of the things that I think he messaged most effectively, and which was new, what we haven't heard from from past drug czars, and which I believe that they should continue, is how much this is an economic issue, as much as it's a saving lives issue. Of course, we want. Uh, zero overdose deaths uh, in the United States or as close to zero as we possibly can from a public health perspective. But this is also a future economic growth problem too. If a country is losing 100,000 people in addition to its normal mortality rate year in and year out, that's an economic growth challenge. And uh, China is looking at it in the same in the same respect, I think, is if the U.S. is losing that many people year in and year out who could be productive members of society, that's an economic issue. Well, it's interesting because it seems to me in some of the solutions that people are proposing to this particular crisis, um, it's very much focused on, in a sense, and I'm sure this is not how they mean it, giving China a free pass and focusing exclusively on the Mexico component. So we've heard a lot about militarizing the border. We've heard a lot about the AUMF um, possibility um, as it relates to Mexico. I mean, how do you think we should be thinking about this as as not just a Mexico problem, but frankly, a, a China problem? I'll jump on the grenade on this one. <laughs> and uh, I, I've had the, the privilege of, of working with Mexican armed forces, especially with the, the Mexican Navy, as well as to an extent with the Mexican Army for, for a number of years, and have an understanding for the level of sensitivity of um, Mexico has over its sovereignty. And that goes back because essentially Mexico is, uh, you know, the, the, the country that has taken the most territory from, from Mexico, thinking of places like, like Texas, <laughs> Northern California, that the United States, if you think about Pershing's primitive expedition, if you think about uh, why. The, the child heroes, the Niños Arroyos, uh, threw themselves off the wall at Chapultepec Castle to, to save themselves from the invading gringos. Um, Mexico's history is, is steeped in the idea that that we, the gringos, are the external source of interfering in their sovereignty, you know, whatever the, the, the more balanced story may be. And so when you get to the the, the drug issue, um, there's an enormous amount of sensitivity there. Let's not to say rightly or wrongly, I think there's some very questionable things, especially that the current government, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, has, has done with, with respect to um, the very restrictive and counterproductive 2020 Mexican national security law, making it very difficult for, for the DEA and, and others uh, to operate in, in Mexico. Um, you know, some very questionable things in terms of, you know, repeatedly visiting the, the, the mother of, of Sinaloa, of, of uh, El Chapo Guzman and Barrio Guato, um, I mean, without going into detail. Um, but the problem is that um, this is one of those areas where there, there are no good solutions given um, U.S. Ec- economic interdependence. Um, and on my, my, my gut feeling is that direct military intervention, first of all, because of the structure of the problem, um, you know, it didn't work very well in, in Iraq because you have to have, you have to go after the networks. But if you don't have the on-the-ground intelligence to go after the networks, selectively taking out targets is not going to be very effective. Um, and so we're certainly not going to get that level of cooperation if we are you know, acting unilaterally in Mexico without their on-the-ground intelligence. Um, frankly, there are other strategic risks that I think direct military action would have as, as frustrated as we might be with the Mexicans. Um, you know, number one is that it would uh, create 
need enormous justification and sympathy, um, not only for, for China and China's position, saying, hey, look, you know, the gringos are, are oppressive, and they would, in some ways, neutralize um, you know, what we're pointing to with the Russians in Ukraine without trying to draw any type of, of moral equivalence. Um, it would, uh, you know, frankly, uh, probably create a lot of, of data accelerating our, our, our lost uh, leverage in a region which is already turning to the left in unprecedented ways, which would be even pushed farther in terms of, of BRICS and, and SELAC. And so, um, to me, the fact that it probably wouldn't solve the problem and it would gravely damage our strategic position as frustrated as, as it can be um, you know, with what's going on in Mexico. Um, so to me, it's we have to do a you know, prudent but suboptimal response. Number one is we need more border security. We need physical security. We need layered security with sensors. We need more persons on the border. We need to reform U.S. Um, border laws uh, in ways that, that close the asylum loophole more definitively um, and, and have a, a more rational way of uh, processing um, immigrants uh, who come into the country, whether, whether legally or otherwise, um, it, because, uh, you know, they are they and, and that, that commerce is, is one of the ways in which, of course, uh, you know, the, the, those flows continue. Um, we need to work with like-minded uh, democratic allies on, on these security issues. Um, there are a range of things that we need to do. We certainly need to put more pressure on the Mexican government uh, in terms of, of costs, leveraging our, our economic costs um, and leveraging the enormous role that, that the U.S. plays in the Mexican economy to try to get the Mexicans to do more. And, and, and frankly, I think one of the things in trying to be too sensitive to the Mexican um, you know, uh, Mexican concerns is that sometimes, uh, at least uh, in my judgment in the past couple of years, we've really given some of the very questionable actions by the Mexican government a, a, a pass, um, and uh, we need to really stop doing that. We need to talk respectfully, but we need to also make it very clear that um, this is a core national security issue for us. We, we expect and need this cooperation. Thank you for your cooperation on, on, on immigration, but we also need this. And so I think with the Mexicans, with the Chinese, and, and frankly, doing more with respect to border and immigration issues. So I want to um, I want to jump Ryan to, I you know at the Vandenberg Coalition we always try to come up with solutions to problems, and I think you just gave great solutions to the um, to the to the fentanyl crisis. And Ryan, you've proposed what I would sort of describe as a, a grand strategy here for. Um, how how to uh, really deter China uh, in the region, which you've described as insulation, curtailment, and competition. So I'd love for you to just sort of walk us through the contours of that strategy mm-hmm. as a, a means for either the Biden administration or a future administration to be thoughtful about how to ensure you know a role for the United States in Latin America. Well, thanks thanks for that opportunity, Carrie. Uh, so the the report that you mentioned is called "Insulate, Curtail, Compete." The subtitle is "Sketching a Grand Strategy for Latin America and the Caribbean." So the report doesn't report to have all the answers, but we are trying to sketch out how we would even think about approaching policy if we wanted to counter China uh, in the region. And my sincere hope is that this can be a bipartisan strategy, that that window of acceptable policies for both Democratic and Republican administrations would be well encapsulated by this type of three-tiered approach. Uh, the first that we outline in the piece is insulation. And what we mean by that is China has been extremely deft at using the economic foray into Latin America and the Caribbean and finding strategic ends for what is otherwise an economic relationship. And few people have been as good as uh, Evan at detailing exactly in which ways that they've been doing that. But that is to say, they're very good at finding leverage points. They're very good at finding co-opted elites. They're very good at co-opting parties. They're very good at finding weak institutions or where there may not be a CFIUS, let's say, to prevent investment in a certain sector in a certain country. They're very good at finding points of leverage and exploiting what would otherwise be basic economic trade for something more strategic. So from an insulation perspective, we want to look at it and say, okay, you are our partner. How do we insulate you from some of those pressures? How do we reduce the power asymmetries that you currently experience with China? You have power asymmetries whether you deal with the United States or whether you deal with the PRC. But our hope is that if you deal with the United States, you get someone who's looking to insulate you from some of the asymmetries that China looks to leverage you. So insulation strategies, just a broad bucket of of strategies where we would look to build out institutions, party structures, uh, make elites uh, less open to to co-optation and so on. On the curtailment piece, the second bucket of strategies we outline, I think this necessarily has to be quite circumscribed. Pick your top three to five areas where you want to make an ask of our U.S. partners and allies. Don't go with China. And have an appreciation for the fact that saying that will incur a political cost for our partners and allies domestically. 
So ideally, you can find those three to five areas where there's a pretty wide ranging consensus between the two, between Democrats and Republicans on the importance of that sector, either to future economic growth or to the future of global economic governance, uh, to security, to privacy, to whatever it might be. And then you make that ask of, of our partners, hoping that they choose the United States as the partner of choice. And then ideally, you marry it to that third bucket, which is the competition, the money, the resources, the, the part of the strategy that the, that the countries will care about most if we're asking them to make a sacrifice and not go in with the PRC. Okay, you don't want me to go with Huawei? I've heard you loud and clear. Where is the money then to subsidize Nokia and Ericsson and other companies that might be offering an alternative, but at a higher price? And we need to necessarily keep both curtailment and competition circumscribed because we can't be competing everywhere. We're not competing for, for, Chinese, uh, for Brazilian soy. We're not competing for Argentine wheat. We're not competing for some of the things that Latin America has on offer, and we won't do ourselves any favors if we do uh, or pursue a curtailment strategy in the wrong areas. So I think we need to have a very important conversation about what those three to five areas might be, and then marry it with some resources given our li limited budget for the Western Hemisphere to put alternatives on the table. So those would be the three buckets that I would outline as like a broad approach to banning China in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Evan, anything that you would add or anything that you disagree with that Ryan's laid out? Just, just to make a few points, I think, number one, just the idea of having a grand strategy, the idea of having a clear strategic direction that everyone across the agencies can kind of sign on to and say, okay, I understand that this is what we're trying to do, and it, and it makes sense. Um, sometimes it's it's not only that um, we, we've had lots of policy documents and strategy documents, but many times we have an absence of that clear articulated vision that, that people understand what it, what it means for them. Um, and I would also say that, again, having worked uh, during uh, President Trump administration, um, I, I can say that, that I see that, that both the Trump administration and the Biden administration fundamentally have had some elements of, of, of these, and they're not actually as far apart as, as you might think. Um, the third thing that I would say is it's important to have this uh, worked out in Washington at uh, fundamentally the, the bureau level. Um, by the time you're trying to coordinate programs between um, you know, commerce and, and DOD and in state at the embassy level with the ambassador playing traffic cop, it's, it's too late. It has to be um, again, at, at the bureau level to make sure that, th that these strategies across agencies are, are working. Um, the other two things, um, number one, it's important, as Ryan alluded to, to have resources, but without being transactional. Um, in other words, mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, if we don't have something that we're trying to, to, to offer as an alternative, um, it just you just don't have the leverage. And at the, at the same time, it can't be, you know, okay, we're going to offer you more than China. We're going to give you more money. We can never win that game as, as a private market-driven economy. Um, and yet at the same time, we also have to balance what I would say strategic interests with values. Um, you know, I'm a big believer of that, as, as you alluded to before. It, it's important for us to leverage the power of, of values and the belief in, in those values in one way or another in, in the region. Um, and yet we can't do it in a... Um, Essentially, a, a a scolding way, um, and because uh, you know, I, I think uh, you know, both administrations have tried to put forth values. Um, but the problem is that if we tried to say, you know, Latin America, no, you are bad, shame on you, um, we end up losing both ways. On, on the one hand, if we find value alignment with a certain leftist regimes, but they are not willing to do cooperate with us in the strategically important things, we have the false perception of value alignment, but we lose. On the other hand, if we essentially beat up some of our closest, although highly imperfect strategic allies, um, we essentially lose their strategic help um, without any clear benefit from it. And so I think we need to think better strategically um, about how you balance values in the current context with strategic interests in, in this on easy rope. I want to end with um, with with one question, which you sort of alluded to, Evan, this idea of um, helping people understand what it means for them and why it matters to them. And Ryan, you also mentioned that Latin America tends not to get the attention in Washington, D.C. that you think it should. Obviously, this entire conversation has been about how our greatest um, geopolitical adversary, China, is sort of operating in, in, in this space. And, and we should be mindful of that and we should find ways to, to combat that. Very quickly, you know, maybe in a, a sentence or two each, why does why does China's role in Latin America matter to the average American? Why should we be worried about it? Well, I think fundamentally it comes back to what I said before about the tidy neighborhood theory. Uh, having an economically prosperous, democratic, linked Latin America with positive views of the United States is a strategic asset that we take for granted day in and day out. 
we will notice it if the region somehow turns and becomes a strategic adversary. For now, it's a strategic asset for us, uh, and we should seek to keep it that way. Really, to dovetail off of Ryan, there is no other region in the world in which uh, our security and prosperity are more intimately and directly linked through ties of geography, through ties of, of commerce, through ties of family than the Western Hemisphere. Um, to that extent, when we see that there are bad conditions in the region or good conditions in the region, we feel we feel it through drugs, we feel it through immigration, we feel it through through other things. Um, and so, at the at the end of the day, um, you know, we have an interest, and frankly, um, our proximity are the similarities in terms of culture and, and language, the the distance, which also helps uh, our, our commercial arrangements. Um, we actually have a strategic advantage in building those opportunities with the region and in supply chains and things like that. Um, and yet at the same time, for the United States, as Ryan alludes to, um, Latin America is the US strategic high ground. It is something that we can fundamentally deny to our adversary, but if we fail to deny it, um, we find that our ability to engage in every other part of the world will be turned head over heels uh, if uh, we face political, economic, and other strategic threats from the part of, of the world which is directly adjacent to the United States. Sure. And this is precisely why China and Russia are so invested in being in this region. Um, thank you both so much for, for sharing more about what China is doing in the region, but also importantly, um, for the optimism of providing uh, examples of what we can do more effectively. You know, this is not a, a battleground that we've lost, um, and we really appreciate the attention that you've, you've brought to it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Carrie. Real pleasure to be on the show. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World. We hope you found today's exploration of competition with China informative and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. To stay up to date on our work and connect with us, subscribe to our newsletter, Beyond the Water's Edge, and follow us on X at, at Vandenberg Co. You can also visit our website at VandenbergCoalition.org for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, I'm Carrie Filippetti, and this is the Vandenberg Coalition's Countering Chinese Communist Party Influence Around the World.